and thank you for tuning in to the Attack and Release Show, the loudest podcast currently broadcasting. <laughs> Don't fact check that. My name is Matt, and I am joined by my good friend, Sam Moses. Ciao. And we, for a while, have been asked, you should do a gear episode. So guess what? You probably read the title. You clicked the clickbait. You're here. <laughs> I think we might make this an annual thing because it's 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 the type of episode, Sam, that really will change year to year. And it'd be kind of cool documenting how our gear findings and whatnot have changed. And yes. We're going to be looking back in a couple of years, still doing this podcast. I'll have a little gray in my beard. And uh, I'll be like, man, why the heck did I do that? So, or, man, I'm glad I sold that or... Who knows? So, you want to unpack this one, Sam? Let's unpack it. I got my suitcase here. I'm going to unpack it. Full of gear. That was the popping of the uh, latches. Is on it an the actual suitcase? suitcase? <laughs> no. Just make oh, sound like, effects. Oh, nice. <laughs> I didn't bring a well, suitcase. What, what's that called? Foley audio or? <laughs> yeah, Foley. F O L E Y. Get my new Foley sample pack, bro. Side chain to your kick. <laughs> Shout out to Sample Pack. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. Let's talk about some gear, Matt. Quick disclaimer. We are not currently sponsored at the time of this recording. So we're not promoing anything. Correct. Um, we're just going to tell you what we like. And I think in kind of unlike every other gear podcast... We're going to also tell you what we don't like, and we're going to tell you things that suck and things that we might get rid of soon. And just because it sucks for us doesn't mean that it's going to suck for you. So if you'd like to buy our gear that we might be getting rid of, (laughs) feel free to do that. And then you essentially would be funding 2020's uh, episode about gear. So Full circle. It's a a whole circle of life right here. Beautiful. Cue Elton John. (laughs) Yeah. So just... uh, Yeah, just be aware of that. Also, the reason why we do not do episodes about gear and why we don't really talk about it that much is because it, while it matters to a degree and it is like what you what we dabble in, it's it's more the I I think I'm stealing this. It's more the ear than the gear. Ooh, and there are people who completely stay in the box. And nothing is wrong with that. And there are people who are 100% out of the box. And then you have hybrid setups. And none of those setups are wrong. And it is all about the client, what the music needs, and how you can essentially best carry that across the finish line. So, or to the finish line, whatever. So... I think that's what I have to say about that. Do you have any disclaimers and stuff? I feel like there should be a lot for this episode. No, that's pretty much the disclaimer I would give. We're not sponsored by anybody. So everything we're about to say... At the time of recording. At the time of recording uh, is unbiased only, and it's based off of our experience of using gear. And I think that's about it, you know? Yeah, and I feel like if there ever is some type of like conflict of interest, perhaps, um, I feel like that disclaimer would be very much in the forefront. 
Absolutely. of the episode. So we don't want to like deceive anyone that like, oh, we really like this. It's like we're just going to like if there's a hype check, we're going to definitely like tell people about it and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. So, All right. Let's dive in. Oh, yeah, no. We're think, not diving. We're <laughs> Unpacking. Damn it. 2018 sneaking up on us. I still write 2018 Unpack sometimes. Unpack it, Sam. Unpacking. Okay, first we need to talk about something. Before we dive into gear, and before you even can think about buying gear, because people ask me all the time, Sam, what gear should I buy? I want to get out of the box. I want to buy a piece of analog gear. What should I buy? And my response is always, what is your goal and what is your sound? So what is your goal to me is, why the heck do you even want to go out of the box? Most of the people I talk to have not even thought about it. (laughs) They just assume if they buy some piece of gear that it will magically give them the professional mastered sound, which used in the right hands may, but if you don't know what you're going for with gear and you don't know what your goal is for buying something, then you're completely buying the wrong tool. It's like trying to build a house and the first thing you probably need to do is like build a foundation, but instead you bought a tile cutter. You'll need a tile cutter at some point, but you don't need it right now. Is that a good example, Matt? (laughs) I'm tracking. Okay, great. So circling back, then I'm going to let that one fly. When you think about gear, you have to first think about what's your goal and what is your sound. And to me, and this is my opinion, and Matt, you'll get to share yours, to me your sound is how you hear music and how you want your end product to sound. And everybody sounds different. Um, I know that. Matt and I have done some master side-by-side comparisons of the same song. And they sound completely different, and that's terrific. Um, And I think... Most people have never really sat down to think about what am I what am I trying to do with this piece of gear? If I want to buy an EQ, should I buy a solid state EQ, a tube EQ, a parametric, a graphic, you know, something like I don't know, Poltec or a passive EQ? There's so many different types of essentially subgenres within gear and they all do a specific thing to help solve a specific problem or get you to the sound you're going for. And I feel like until you know what your sound is or what you're going after after it's almost impossible to figure out what piece of gear is the right fit for you. So when I first started uh buying gear I bought a lot of things and I returned a lot of things because quickly, A, I learned that analog can color the crap out of your music really quickly if you Mm -hmm. don't know how to gain stage it or use it correctly. So immediately when I bought my first piece of analog gear, I actually did not like it because I thought, well, this sounds kind of cloudy and round and interesting and I don't think this is accomplishing what I hoped it would, which would be basically... Eight years ago, I bought a piece of gear thinking this will just master the album for me. <laughs> I what think was, was the first thought. piece that you bought? Uh, the first piece I bought for mastering would have been the Black Lion AMCHA1 mm. Mastering EQ, which they don't make anymore. I think they made it for like one year. 
and it is a Poltex style EQ, and then I had Sinmag vintage transformers put in it. And it's very clean, it's very sterile, um, but it has a vintagey thing going on with it. And I remember putting some pop stuff through it and feeling like, mm. well, this just became dark and not very cool sounding. Like I lost all the hype. Mm-hmm. I gained some bottom beef, but I was just like, some bottom beef. <laughs> I gained some of that. But I feel like I lost the whole kind of hi-fi pop sound, and I was disappointed. Um, and so I think what I learned quickly was that, A, gear will not solve your problems. It will not give you a career. Most clients do not care about gear. I've had maybe three or four in my whole career ask me what I use, and once I told them, they said, okay, cool. Um And I think it's very important when you approach gear or talk about gear that you view it as a a tool and as something you can use to get you to an end product you desire personally Um, because clients hire you for you. They don't hire you because you have an API 2500 because if they did, then almost everybody could do the same thing, but we all know mm-hmm. everybody makes different music with the same gear. Because it's your ears that what's it's that's what matters, like you said, Matt, earlier. I mean it's the, the most important like yeah. piece of your rig. Absolutely. And it's it's really why people hire you to do your thing. Right. And <clears throat> while and Sam and I we were doing a little bit of uh pre pro before uh, the intros and all that stuff, and uh, we were talking about his black line. And he's like, "Yeah, it's really surgical and stuff." And I said, "That sounds like the opposite of like who you are as a mastering <laughs> engineer, because you're you're like pretty hands on, and you're like kind of like elbows deep in things and trying to bring out like the best in the song, and you're not really afraid to like go to all ends of the earth to find like like a very abstract piece of gear in order to make that work." Right, so it's very unique about you, and you definitely have a chain that is uh, that not a lot of people have what you have. Right, and I believe that's why you have the clientele that you do. Um, I agree, but yeah, hearing that you had something that was clean was very uh, not Sam Moses of you. <laughs> but yeah, and then when you said that that black line had a very vintage sound, I was like. It was like it was like that's something that you're either going to really love or really hate. Yeah, and I feel like I don't know, and and kind of I, I I don't I don't know if I stole your thunder by cutting you off. No, um, but I feel like when I first uh, hopped out of the box, what mattered the most to me was versatility. Yeah, and I mean, and that's why I went the route that I did. Um, I mean, we can we can talk about that. Let's down talk about the line. it. No, it's the gear you episode. Talk about it. Let's talk about it. Okay, this is the gear episode. We're not passing up on gear talk. We're, okay, <laughs> we won't pass up on it. It's very easy for us to. I know. We're just this is this will be episode what like thirty three, thirty four, something like that, something around there. So it's like we've been passing up on it for the past year. So let's talk about anyhow. your first piece of gear. Yeah, so when I wanted to hop out of the box, um, I saw a bunch of people, they would 
get an EQ or they would get a compressor or, um, I don't know, like, I, I don't want to call those things one-trick ponies. I, and, and I apologize if it's taken that way. But I wanted to have something that was very versatile and not necessarily, like, made going out of the box worth it, but something that, like, I could do multiple things and that could really cater to, like, almost any song that I threw at it. And so after I bought the Hilo, which I used for my A to D and D to A, um, and my monitoring, because I was using, like, a really... And I, I see some mastering engineers use this, and I've always meant to ask, but I don't know how to... I really suck at writing, and that's why Sam has a blog and I don't. Um, I've always meant to reach out, but essentially I used to use a PreSonus central station for my monitor controller. And while it was cool and it was pretty clean, it would start acting kind of fidgety, and then I'd turn the volume all the way down, and like I'd still have... like some music coming out of one of the monitors and I couldn't ever trim it out because you have trims for all your three uh, sends, uh, monitor sends. Uh, I could never trim it out and it remaining balanced when it was at level. So it was something that was internal. It was something I couldn't figure out, so I got rid of it. And so since the Hilo could do monitor controller and my conversion, that was kind of like pulling the trigger for me with getting that. Oh, also something kind of interesting. So I bought the Hilo in what was it? When did you buy your Hilo? Two years ago? Yeah. It was because of you. You got me on the Hilo train. You bought it like the month after I did. Yeah. And um Yeah, I've I've just I've just really liked it. But I love I mean, it too. I, I mean, that that was really the main thing that sold me on it is that it wasn't the whole, like, one-trick pony of just buying a converter. Yeah. It's, oh, I, I remember what I was going to say. The The main thing that made me pull the trigger is that, I mean, every year you have, like, two NAMs and, or however you nom, NAM, whatever the hell you call it. And every year a manufacturer has an opportunity, and you don't have to do it there, but they have an opportunity to release, like, new gear. Mm-hmm. And they just kept updating the Hilo. And the January of the year that I purchased the Hilo, they just released a massive, massive firmware update. Yeah. And call it that, I bought the Hilo in 2016. And I think they brought it out in 2011 or 2012. Mm -hmm. And in 2016, they're still doing firmware updates. That must mean that there's something on there that is still pretty darn competitive yep. X number of years later. Yeah. So that's why that's why I purchased that. But then right after the staying with the whole thing of like not settling on like a one trick pony, I went out to the Neve because uh the Neve Master Bus processor. Because with it, and I gotta like look over my mic so I can see what <laughs> what's going on. So you can do you can do uh you have compression, you have parallel compression, you have um, two sets of transformers in it that you can dial in. They call it silk red and silk blue. Uh, and you, and you, you essentially can like blend that in. Um, they have a one-knob limiter. You can do 
your compression, RMS or peak, feed forward, feed backward. Um, and then, yeah, and then you can essentially link everything to channel A or you can have it A, B, which I was talking with another mastering engineer who's up in Canada, and he was saying, and, and I, I, he had just purchased one, and I said, let me know if I'm crazy because linking the channels gives you like a little tiny, and with no compression compression on, Linking the channels gives you a tiny bit more glue than you had by having them unlinked. It just kind of allows the transients to do whatever they want uh, unlinked and then linked. It just tames everything a little bit. It's it's really weird. And then even they could probably take this part and sell it for the exact same price as the MVP, and it'll probably sell just as well. On the very far right, they have something called a stereo field editor, which... I'm not going to try to figure out how the heck they make it work, but essentially you have depth and width controls. And with the depth, you can send um, essentially what is, like, if you go MS, you take the mid, you can either push it forward or you can pull it back. And then with the width, you can make it wider or you can pull it more towards the center. And then you have an EQ option with it to where you can dial in specific curves in order to only select like certain frequency ranges. So it is very much not a one-trick pony. You can also send the stereo field editor mid-side to your AB channels as well. Hmm. So you can do quite a lot with it. Um, my gripes with it... Um, yeah, I guess if we say a lot of good stuff, if you have anything you're pissed off about, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I guess definitely say that. Um, my gripes would include... Um, I really wish the metering was... You could see less than a dB. Yeah. And the reason... And especially on the gain reduction, because you'll hear the compression happen before the meter meters it. And that's kind of annoying. Um, that would be a cool mod. If they make a mod for that and somebody knows about that, let me know. Also, another thing, I might have to send this back to Neve for a warranty check because some of the detents in the pots on the early stages, like when you're centered on zero and you divert from zero, the first couple steps either way have been used so much that they're a bit worn out. Hmm. So I'm actually talking with their service department right now and i guess i can report back on how their service department is but i think those are my two biggest gripes um if anyone else has had those or is cool with those problems and they it gets better or something feel free to write in or whatever but besides that i absolutely love the piece of gear so how do we do this sam do we trade off do you tell what you use in <laughs> i can talk about gear it's so interesting because we don't do gear episodes, so it's like, what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean that if that you know that was your first piece of gear, mine was the Black Lion. Um, I mean one of my favorite, my favorite first piece of gear that kind of became a desert island piece was the Overstayer MAS. Um, which I don't I, know how they don't sponsor you. It's like I don't know a I mastering send, engineer. I talk about them all the time on Instagram, and we've talked. But 
nothing yet. Maybe, maybe someday. I don't, they don't have to, but it'd be nice. Um, the overstayer to me, I bought because I was looking for a tape saturation console type sound that I knew <clears throat> there's not a lot of companies that make something that specific and do it really well. Um, I know like the Neve Portico, I think that's what it is. They have the tape emulator, the 500 series ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and those sound pretty good, but I wanted more of something I could push into quite hard and drive like a console. And so I tested out, I went to Vintage King in Nashville and tested out the Overstayer, those tape saturators from Neve or emulators. Um, the Alicia character, it's spelled with a K. I think it's just called character, um, which is like a saturator tape emulation thing. Um, and a culture vulture tube thing. Can't remember what it was, honestly. But I immediately loved the overstare. I brought some of my own mixes uh, to Vintage King, which Vintage King, uh, to me, has always been wonderful. The customer service has been great. They let me go in their main room. I brought in my own mixes. They had everything patched in. I mean, I got to sit in there for like a whole hour um, with one of their uh, reps and just test out gear on my own material, which to me is the only way to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kept coming back to the overstayer. It has, it sounds like a console. And when I say that, I'm meaning you can push things and the transients instead of getting compressed or limited, like a compressor limiter, they start to just get rounded off within the transformers and the VCA chips. And, they become saturated, um, which is essentially it's distorting, but in the most fat, nice way. Um, and then besides that, it has a parallel blend, which I've found to be awesome because I can really dial in like saturation and then blend it in. And then it has like three stages of harmonics within it, even odds, and you can put them both in, which creates even more harmonic distortion. And then it has a shelf, um, well, it has like a resonant peak at 50 hertz, kind of like a filter, which on hip-hop and stuff is amazing. It just makes the low end super fat. Then it has a 100 hertz shelf and then a 12K shelf. Um, I actually don't love the 12K shelf on it. Um, I find it to be a little too bright and harsh for most stuff that comes in, and I think that's because most people are working in the box and they kind of already have this artificial top end. And to me, the overstayers top shelf um, doesn't really smooth that over like my massive passive does with tubes. Um, And so I find myself mainly driving into it to create fatness. And then I love the 50 hertz resonant peak filter and the 100 hertz on it to beef up things and then blend it in with the parallel knob. I find it to be, when people describe to me like analog, glue, mojo, warmth, it's always usually the first thing I try out for people. Um, 
and almost always it's a great fit for that idea. Um, and once I bought, once I had that piece of gear, that was probably like my third piece, fourth, actually fifth piece of gear, honestly. Yeah. Um, that was the first piece of gear that I thought I can't not use this on things. It was one of those things Mm -hmm. where I was like a plugin can't touch this. That was my first, this was my first aha moment, which I love plugins and we're going to talk about plugins too, because I think plugins part of gear. Um, but this was one of those pieces where I was like, this is a special sound. They've nailed it. Um, you know, it, it sounds terrific. There's no plugin that I have or have seen that can even get close to it. And it really sparked me to want to just become obsessed with finding pieces of gear like that, which I've continued to do um, with like the massive passive, the original silver face that I picked up just a little bit ago. I purposely bought the silver face because a bunch of the OG mastering guys that I like all own the silver face. They don't own the mastering edition. Um, and I found the massive passive silver face one to be a similar <coughs> sound where I feel like I can almost mix an album at the mastering stage with it because of how, I don't know, how freaking good the EQ is on it, the way you can pull things in and out. There's almost nothing, no mix now that I've gotten the last few weeks since I've had it that I feel like is going to ever give me trouble because of how good it is. Um, it's so actually I've, kind of interesting. I think I yeah. sent it to you, but it was a uh, it was a thing that I saw on Instagram that Warren Hewitt, uh, who does produce like a pro on YouTube, he interviewed uh, Bob Ludwig. Yeah. And he took a handful of pictures of Bob's studio and he has three massive passive, none none of which are the mastering version. Yeah. I just thought that was kind of kind of interesting. So I mean definitely gives credit to what you just said as well. Yeah, and I think I think the reason why a lot of the older guys or big time guys don't have it is because the original sound that everybody fell in love with was the silver face version. And then the mastering version, they changed the filters and the tube lineup's a little different. Um, and it's identical to the the purple one, the non-mastering one. Those are essentially the same. The mastering one just has different filters in the um, detented pots. Is that the correct term? Yeah, detented pots. Mm-hmm. Or stepped pots, whatever the language you want to use. Um, but I just found, I found with when I buy pieces of gear that have stepped, you know, pots or whatever, or rotary knobs, like the overstayer, I have the mastering one that has, they call it their rotary knobs, Um, that if you want to dial in something kind of super precise or different than having everything at unity, you know, you don't have that option anymore. Um, and I found with the massive passive that I actually enjoy being able to be on like three and a quarter on the left and four, you know, and three fourths on the right channel. And my massive passive, I tested it all out and I did that on Instagram. A lot of people watched it. And it's within like 0.1 dB, like the left and right channels, no matter what mm-hmm. I'm doing. And it's pretty insane how accurate it is. Um, but I enjoy having the flexibility and, you know, people's pushback is like, oh, recall and consistency. And it's like, 
I've really been wrestling with that idea, and this goes into gear and probably a bigger statement of life, but like I never want to not do something because I'm like, oh, it takes five minutes. <laughs> like, And I think that's a <laughs> lot of like people that have gone in the box and the bigger time guys that are all like, oh, yeah, I sold all my 1073s and consoles and I just use the plug and it's the same. I'm calling bullshit on that because it's not the same. You know, does your client still like your work? Absolutely. Can you work in the box and have a great career and win Grammys? Absolutely. People do it. But I hate the argument of, well, it's faster because it's like, when, when was, when, when did the point become like, let's see how fast we can do everything? And that's kind of Mm -hmm. like a cultural thing of like, how fast can we do everything? Yeah. It's a very American thing. Yeah. And I just, the more analog gear I buy, the longer kind of my stuff takes because I have more recall. But I'm obsessed with it now because of the sound and the color and the creativity you can get to me with analog gear um, is what makes music fun. I didn't get into music to see how fast I could master a song. You know, That's not like what my clients judge me on either. <laughs> they, I feel like if I was like, yeah, I spent two minutes on your song because I have four plugins that I really like and here's your song two minutes later, they'd be like, is this really worth it? Like, did you care? And mm-hmm. obviously Where's the value? Yeah, in the too? value in it. And that doesn't mean that because you spend more time something's better quality. But I just I just don't agree with the idea that, you know, a lot of the guys who have moved in the box are doing it and their biggest reason is like for speed. And it's like if your life is so busy that you don't have an extra 30 minutes within your project to recall, even on a console, a mixer, takes you 30 minutes maybe to pull up. If you're really on a a console that like has zero help with recall. But it's like just do it. The it's more fun. It sounds I'm going to say it sounds better. I do think it sounds better. And I think if a client could A, B, your in-the-box mix versus the console mix, they'd pick the console mix every time. I almost guarantee that. And I think this argument about, and obviously this is a little side tangent, but when people are like, I moved in the box, my client doesn't know the difference. It's like, well, did you give them an A, B choice? Like, did you send them the the in-the-box mix and the console mix or... The you know all UAD plugins mix, and then did you mimic the same, you know, with all the outboard gear? Because when I've done that, I notice a huge difference in depth and in width and in density. Analog gear always has won that. Now whether or not analog gear is the best fit, you know, that's a different conversation. But to wrap up the side tangent, I I just feel like. There are pieces of gear that I own that capture my sound that I'm trying to get. And the more I find those pieces of gear, like the Massive Pass over the Overstayer, and even the Better Maker Mastering Limiter, which is to me insane. I love everything Better Maker is doing right now, too, is awesome because they're combining digital recall, but it's all analog based. Circuitry and analog do you use stuff. The, do you use the plug-in with it, or you just dial it in by hand? I well, you can save. I don't use the plug-in, but the unit has like a built-in recall within it. 
So you can do up to four hundred. Uh, I was just songs. asking with like I was just asking with how you set it up. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure that like it can hook up to your computer that you can just use it and then it just dials it in via the via the, right. the limiter. Yep, you're correct. Yeah. I was just curious if you dial it in by hand or if you use the plug-in. I do dial it in by hand because I actually find it faster. Just mm-hmm. like with the massive passive, using a massive passive as a plug-in is a pain in the butt because there's <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know, I'm counting, 4, 8, 12, 24. There's over 24 knobs. So that's 24 that's mouse clicks. Clicks to do anything, where I can use both hands, grab two knobs, turn, 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 flip, 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 flip. And in a plug-in with the Massive Pacify, I'd still be on, like, the first band, (laughs) being, like, click, (laughs) drag. Oh, too far. Oh, too far. Like, with this, it has such defined clicks that it's, like, you can't go past it. Where with the plug-in, that's one of my biggest gripes with plug-ins is, like, you can just be, like, oh, ten knobs, 10 dB too much. Sorry. Let me get it back yeah. down. Um, where with analog, it's, you know, clicks and you're there instantly and it's locked in. But, um, but yeah, with the better maker, I do the same thing. It's a touch screen. It's awesome. You just touch, 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 and you're done. Um, or you touch the knobs and you can turn them, you know, two at a time, which in a plug-in, I can't do that either. So that's how I use mine and, and I like that. But, um, but yeah. Those are a few of the pieces of gear, like Overstayer, the Massive Passive, the Better Maker, Mastering Limiter. I'm obsessed with them. I would buy them over and over again, and between the three of them, I feel like I can shape almost any sound that's in my head or the client's requesting. Um, And I'm in the pursuit to find more pieces of gear that inspire me like those three do. So. Those are kind of my, that's my, my nerd out on my hardware, I'll say. Outside Your of go to. Yeah, outside of the Hilo, and I can't say enough good things about the Hilo, and I'm so glad that you got me onto it because I've heard a lot of converters, I've done shootouts of converters, and the Hilo to me, you just hear the music, you don't hear the Hilo. And that's also like with the barefoot monitors I have. I had somebody come over and listen to my room, and they really loved the room, which it's hard not to like my room, honestly. And the Humble barefoots, brag. it is, yeah. <laughs> my room sounds very good, um, and it, it's because I put money into it and all that. But the barefoots, to me, you just hear the sound. You don't hear the box. You don't hear the cones. You very much hear just what was created. And that paired with the Hilo, I feel like it's just one of the most transparent, uncoloring listening environments. And for mastering, for me, that's you know what I'm really after is I don't want to hear the the speaker, I don't want to hear the speaker's box, I don't want to hear my converter. I just want to hear what was sent to me accurately first, and then I know I can color the crap out of it or whatever I want to do with what I have, you know, to, as outboard gear. But I think it, you know, I think within the gear talk, I think it's always important to try and improve your setup for the sake of yourself. At least I find value in it, even if your clients don't care or notice the difference. Um, I don't know, there's something about continually wanting to kind of grow and learn and enhance your product that appeals to me, which is why I keep doing that and 
you know, I think within gear we could even talk about cables. <laughs> like you and I both know, Matt, we both believe that cables matter. Matt did an awesome cable test um, that maybe we should upload the file sometime too. That would be kind of interesting. But there is a difference between Mogami cables and I can't remember the other brand of the cables, the more like just kind of standard. Um, no, they're actually like a stupid hi-fi cable. Oh, um, is that what they were? Yeah, I forgot. I'm kind of like tethered into my desk with the headphones and everything. <laughs> That's all right. I got it off of... It, it's like... It's kind of expensive, but it was... What's it called? It starts with a T. Uh, yeah, Tributaries A1 Silver uh, Twin Axial Audio Cable. Yeah. Um, so it's a, uh, it's a silver-coated cable... It's a really high-end, uh, hi-fi audio cable. And whenever you, like, like I, I went from Mogami with uh, silver-tipped connectors to this tributary, silver solder, silver connectors, uh, Neutrik connectors, and then silver cable. Um, I mean, when I would switch over from my monitoring to my routing on the Hilo, I mean, it would definitely... Uh, my first instinct was, wow, like everything became a little more rich. Mm. But the trade-off was, um, like, I'd say the biggest trade-off is that the top end got a little shaved off. Yeah. Um, which in some cases is cool because I like to do a little top end thing out of the box. So yeah. kind of having some of the digital top end taken off doesn't necessarily bother me. But once again, you got to go back in so anything that you do is going to be taken off, uh, or at least to a degree, heading back in. I guess I could go back in Megami. That'd be kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that was that was kind of that experiment. I went back to all Mogami, though, just because it's like, I like going between the routing and the monitoring pages on the, uh, on the Hilo, and I like not hearing a difference between them. Yeah. Just because, like, the Megami is, like, stupid clean. Yeah. So... And it's like I, yeah, I just shot out like a like a handful of other cables. That was that was the most interesting one. But I thought it'd be kind of cool. It's like, well, what if I were to make like a patch bay that like I could switch out different converter cables and stuff like that? And it's like, well, then you're getting all this other junk in the mix. And it's like, let's just stick with <laughs> let's just stick with what we know, right? So, but yeah, it's like like cabling is definitely like a big thing, and uh, my. Good friend Angel Delgado, he just he makes all of my cables, and uh, we just custom do everything. And I mean, I think you say in the South is bless your heart or bless their heart. Like <laughs> if they like, like like sometimes that means that like like you're a dumbass. The other time it means is like I kind of feel bad for that person. But like seriously, like bless his heart. I got this uh, manly backbone, and it's a tran- it's a mastering transfer console. And it has uh, the old Elko connectors in the back of them, two of them. And um, uh, when I got it, he said, well, how would I go through and I, like, re-tip everything and just, like, making sure, that, like, all the connections are good. And I'll, uh, when I re-tip everything, I'll do it all in silver solder and everything. So he went through and and so let's let's see. I think it's, like, I think it's 64 connectors. I, th- I, think, that's how it, I think that's how it breaks out because it'd be... 
I don't know, I'm not doing the math. It was a lot. <laughs> not not like connectors, but like little tiny pins right. because you have the three connectors for each XLR right. going in. So it was it was quite a bit. Um and I couldn't be more thankful. And he went in with a uh, silver solder and, and did all those and I mean it works absolutely fantastic. If anyone can find a backbone, I could not recommend one more. Yeah. Um you have essentially you have three inputs. Um, and I, I think the whole box itself is passive until, uh, you punch in for the gains. You have to hit a switch and then you can, uh, it activates the, the gain controls. Um, but you have three inputs. You have a left, right, reverse, which is kind of cool. Uh, I haven't had to use it, but I've had situations where it's like, uh, maybe, mm-hmm. um, but not definitively yet. Uh, you have under the left right reverse you have a gain switch which will activate your input and your output gains having both input and output gain is incredible because mm-hmm. it's like if you drive it a little bit too hard in the box or maybe it comes a little bit too hot and you want to start originally out of the box you can dial it back so that's kind of cool um, or if you want to kind of like drive it into the limiter that's a little that, that's pretty nice too and then you have uh, left and right uh, phase reverse, and it's not like independent. It is you switch them, and essentially, that's for like if someone did something and say like the kicks out of phase, and like you just have like no low end, you can just push that one button, and your problem could be solved. Yeah. So I mean, at the height of the kick, you want that uh, you want the cone on your monitor essentially pumping air out at you, and if it's not doing that, then Flip that switch and you're good to go. Then you have your eight inserts, uh, two and three. You have a uh, MS encoder, and then it also activates a stereo widener. Or you can essentially you can move everything in, instead of sum, uh, instead of mid and side. They call it sum and difference. But if you turn everything towards the sum, it all comes closer to the mono. If you uh, spread it to the difference, then more to the side. And it's it's a pretty tasteful widener as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, four and five, you can swap. And then eight's kind of interesting in that you can blend whatever you have on eight in parallel. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have any tasty treats on the outside, but you don't <laughs> want all of the tasty treats, you can just kind of blend that in, which is nice. Um, that's with the mix knob. It has... This really, really, really sweet, probably like the smoothest, like fader knob I've yeah. ever like. I, th- I think what's the company? I think the, like the main like switches are Greyhill, but then the the fader is like I think it's a company called Penny and Giles, and I think they make a lot of uh, like knobs and stuff for like military aircraft and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So very, very smooth fader and you can switch it into fade mode and from 100% you can f- do a manual fade which is nice and then you have a mixed difference mode which is uh, a destructive element if not used correctly <laughs> but essentially takes some of from what I've read it takes some or all of the it takes out of phase material from the input and then you can essentially blend that in to the in phase material which can give you a widening effect. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to shoot out the two wideners, and sometimes one is more tasteful than the other, hmm. but it's very bizarre, and uh, I like it. And 
It was just kind of cool. They like literally thought of everything with it. Like input six also has like a separate uh, input on the backside outside of the Elko. So I have uh, two. I I have an XLR pair running out to the side of my desk so that I can audition gear if I get new gear in or if someone wants to hear something. Yeah, you can just. You don't even have to worry about the snakes. You just patch it into those XLRs, and you're awesome. you're good to go. Yeah, it's just like random stuff. It's like holy crap, you thought of everything. And even in the manual, it's like yeah. And if you wanted to mod it so that you could have less noise, even though there's no noise with it, <laughs> you can take these ribbon connectors and you can move them around and do this and do that. Yeah, and it's like holy crap. So very 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 cool piece of gear. Yeah. So. Very glad I got that. So that's my one manly review, and so you now have two manly reviews. <laughs> we like manly. So, yeah, I'm really excited to hopefully one day maybe come out to Nashville again and play with your massive pass. That sounds weird. That's a weird <laughs> sentence. Whatever. Come play anyway, with my so I ha- passive. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, another piece of gear I have. Uh, right after the Neve, I bought a uh, Maslick MPL2. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that is absolutely horrid about digital mixes, and I really have not seen a good example of this, minus one, of a good, um, we'll, we'll call it a DS or the Maslick, uh, or Maslick calls it a peak and high frequency limiter. Um, uh, and I think that they have, I think that they stopped making this. At least that's what Vintage King told me by way of Maslick. And they only make it in a DSing version now, and so it's a dual mono DSer. But the MPL2 has um, a cool MS mode, and it's say you start on the far. I, I guess you go. I, I guess you go by the signal chain. The signal chain actually starts on the left. You have input gain, and then you have a threshold for your limiter. And uh, the limiter itself has a little bit of a tone, not a lot. Um, but if essentially you put it on uh, a hard knee and you just kind of like hit it just so like the zero flickers a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, you'll have a little bit more of a punch, which is kind of cool. And then going in and then that then feeds into the uh, high frequency limiter or, or a DSer. And it's all it's all sweeping knobs. Nothing is stepped, which I do appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, you can really dial it in in a finite way. Um the manual is a little confusing on how the MS on this actually works, but I'm going to give it a stab at how I think it works. And if I'm wrong, somebody write in, and maybe I'll learn something new about a piece of gear I have. <laughs> but essentially, as you dial in the threshold, the release times uh, get shorter. And um, it, when with MS mode switched on, it's only really worried about what's happening uh, on the sides, I think. And then with it turned off, it's focusing on the whole mix. So sometimes you only want to focus on like certain material. So it's not like true MS, but it's just like it's focusing on like a certain part of the scheme. And then if you want that out, then we're going to focus on like the rest. So the DSer does not have that. So I also didn't want it in dual mono either. So that's how I like it. And it's cool because it has um uh it has like a kind of like an analog e vibe even though Maslick is pretty uh quiet sounding gear. 
it has a little bit of an analog sounding vibe. But if you use it, I don't recommend to use it like on its own. Mm-hmm. I recommend using it with like alongside something else, kind of doing the same thing. And so I use it alongside Oak Sounds uh, Plugin Soothe, which I really like. I think they call it a dynamic resonance control. And I don't know how they do what they do. I mean, I can do a demo if anyone wants to see how it, <laughs> how, how it works, but just just download the freaking demo and you're not going to be disappointed. I can't recommend it enough. They should sponsor an episode. So that would be... And we'll talk for an hour on Soothe. So <laughs> uh, let's see. Then I got the IGS Tube Core Mastering Edition. That one's kind of cool. Um, I have it listed up on Reverb, but... I don't know why. I was just like, eh, it's cool, but I might want to, I think I want to go a little bit higher end with that. But I swapped out the tubes. I put in 6386s, and uh, the tubes that come stock with it suck. And they're like really woofy. And so I was like, well, instead of selling this, I'll give it another chance and I'll give it uh, another set of tubes. And Something I really don't like about the company is the manual doesn't necessarily make sense to a video that they have posted about how to calibrate the unit. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so I didn't really feel good with how I calibrated it after I put the tubes in, and I didn't want to screw anything up with biasing or something like one tube, essentially one tube like unmatching the pair. So... I gave Vintage King a call. I sent it off to them to do some very fine calibration to it. And they did it. I mean, they think they did it in like an hour. But uh, something that I thought was a little fishy is that they didn't, like, they reached out to IGS and they're like, hey, like, what's the reference that you set for zero? Because sometimes zero isn't always zero. And for some reason, IGS wouldn't tell them that. Hmm. And they had to, like, work with them over, like, a week, which is odd because... The tube core is sold by Vintage King. Like VK is like a distributor. Yeah. So I thought that that was really bizarre. But yeah, Vintage King got it and um, sent it back, and I am kind of in love with it. But I don't know. I wouldn't be sad if it it went. But <laughs> it definitely has a really cool 3D like vibe to it. And sometimes you don't even want to compress. You just leave the threshold set on zero. And you do just a little bit of like, like I, and like you, I, I'm, I'm gonna say you do a little bit parallel, but it's like how do you do parallel without the compression? And that's like that's not how it necessarily works. Like you just, it's one of those things that you really just gotta try. Yeah. And it's a really sweet tube vibe, and I'm kind of in love with it. But I wouldn't be sad if it left. And then I think the last thing that I have is uh. The Bax EQ by Dangerous. I bought an old one instead of a new one. I don't know why. Because um, the new one looks pretty sick. But I like the vibe of the old one. And I stay pretty clean uh, for the most part. Yeah. And I think the Bax goes right along with that. In that uh, you have shelves and you have like high and low pass filters. Um and think of the backs like a really vibey, old, uh, like, receiver EQ. That's kind of how I look at the backs. Yeah. Um, let's see. 
I mean, your cuts for your low frequency start at like 12 hertz. Yeah. So it's like if you just want like, if someone just has like some like infrasonic trash that just on like the really low end trash that it's just like muddying up stuff, you can just roll that off just really nicely with that. And that's probably the most used thing. Um, And then... I mean, you get into shelving, and the shelving, like, the low end just, like, adds, like, a nice little thud. Yeah. And it's it's really darn tasteful. The high frequency is pretty darn nice. Um, I really don't ever go beyond 3.4, mm-hmm. but it's, I mean, I, I, I can definitely dig in with it. And I've heard several other mastering engineers say what I'm about to say is, and I th- I'm pretty sure it's just because, like, it's a mastering thing uh, to say something like this, but even though it's in half dB steps, Quarter dB would be nice as well. <laughs> so I've also heard several mastering engineers say with the high frequency cut that they can't hear it when 70 is turned on, but they turn it on 70 for all their masters just in case it's like, well, it's more like catching. I, I always mispronounce this word like aliasing or whatever it is. It's essentially like the sampling that like you can't hear that puts the extra load on the converter and whatnot. Um, and then it can, like, if it's loud enough, it can trickle down into uh, into semi-audible frequencies. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of, I'm pretty sure what that's for. Some people say they can't hear it, and I'm not going to say that I can hear a cut at 70K, but it could just be something with the unit, but there is a little bit of a tone with it, and I'm not always the biggest fan of it. And so most times I leave that off. So that's the first step in the chain. And it's kind of like to clean things up. Like if I needed anything cleaned up um, before I went into the next piece of gear, that's what I use. And I really like it. But if you want a piece of gear to get in the way, this is not that piece of gear. So that's kind of my in the box or out of the box stuff. That's awesome. I hope we're boring the crap out of people so they're like, man, quit those gear episodes. Those ones suck. We're doing this episode intentionally for people to be like, that's the worst one. Never do a gear episode again, please. I'm doing this excessively monotone, (laughs) as you can see with the Tube Core Mastering Edition. After 23 on the wet signal, it goes to 24. And then before that, it's a 22. (laughs) That's what we should do an episode. That we don't want to do again. What do you use in the box, Sam? In the box, I love. These are my things I love in the box. Uh, the Oxford Inflator and Oxford Limiter, and I don't. Which Sam turned me on to those. Yeah, it was um, one of the first studios I worked at back in Illinois. Uh, the guy I was shadowing, assisting, interning, doing whatever he wanted, uh, used the Oxford limiter. And I just remember him putting it on everything and dialing in the enhanced curve, the X curve on it. And it just made everything seem larger than life. Um, and then when I got to Nashville, one of the first studios I was at, a uh, guy had the inflator which is the kind of the low end side uh, harmonics. The limiter to me kind of captures the top end harmonics, and the inflator kind of does a bottom end beef density. Um, 
that I still feel like no hardware actually can touch. Um, it's they both have very unique sounds, and they almost instantly make your song louder uh, by not really moving your meters up at all. Basically, because it's causing harmonic distortion, um, which makes things sound louder with out necessarily increasing the actual voltage or volume of your song. Um, so I love both of those. Uh, I know there's a ton of big time guys who use them on every single session. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to use them once I have basically the master is done and I will toss them on <clears throat> And dial in the the fader on the plugin from zero. I'll kind of move it up very slowly and see if it is adding anything. Just kind of a last one or two percent. Um, for me, the inflator helps solidify kind of a low end mid range. If I feel like the song is still kind of lacking that, or I'm playing the whole EP front to back, and song three is lacking that, um, and I just need a hair of something, but not EQ or compression. You know, I can dial in the inflator. The limiter I love to use mainly for pocketing vocals or bringing them out. Um, I feel like when I'm jumping from song to song, um, like spot checking courses to see how the vocal's sitting, because that's a big thing a lot of clients want in the mastering stages for you to make sure kind of the vocal's sitting the same spot throughout the album. Um, I found the limiter the enhance knob to really be able to either pull a vocal out or you can push it back if if you have it on and all of a sudden you throw an EQ on that brings it out too much, you can then pull it back. So fine-tuning both those plugins to me are really helpful with like the last 1% of making everything sit just how I like it from start to finish on, you know, on singles, but also it's really helpful with EPs and full lengths. Um, and then... I'm a huge fan of Brainworks uh, plugins, which is Plugin Alliance. I think that's the parent company. Um, the limiter, XL limiter, is awesome. And the uh, hybrid EQs they have are awesome. Uh, super clean. They also have the saturator. <coughs> they call it like the XL knob on it, which is like saturation, harmonic distortion. And I find that to be actually pretty tasteful, although I don't use it a ton anymore because I feel like my outboard gear is really pretty solid with all of that. Um, and then I kind of got turned on to FabFilter, the limiter, um, from you, because you have that, right? I do. Yeah. The so, Pro L2. Yeah, the Pro L2, I have found that to be a great limiter to stop inner sample peaking and oversampling, which is mainly what I use it for is at the end of the chain, it's dithering and oversampling, inner sample peaking. Uh, I have a hard time finding any other piece of gear or a, not gear, but plug-in that really helps uh, keep inner sample peaks from happening like the Fab Filter does. Um, so those are the main plugins. I will use, if needed, the fab filters always on. Now it's the last chain; it's just there to help with what I just described. It's not really doing it's a anything. Nice little safety. Yeah, it's. I don't use it for limiting, other than it's maybe catching the inner sample peaks essentially. Um, 
but yeah, that's those are the the plugins I really like. I'm using less and less plugins the more gear I buy. I'm probably ninety doing ninety five percent of the heavy lifting out of the box, which is kind of have been for a while now. Um, and it's just personal preference. I really like working out of the box. I really like plugins for their surgical and precision. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm a big fan of when I'm out of the box. I'm kind of boosting. Everything's kind of in boost mode, <laughs> pretty much. I uh, the manly like the massive passive. Pretty much everything is boosting shelves and broadband. The better maker limiter. It's on. You know, color harmonics clipping is on. You know, the overstayers boosted harmonics shelving. Anything analog out here, if you were to walk into my room, it's all boosting stuff. Um, And I just find analog gear boosted sounds awesome and fat for what I'm going for. Um, And I find digital to be really good at cutting um, and being surgical with that. So I agree. Those are the plugins I dig. What about you, Matt? Man, mine's boring. (laughs) It's not boring. I'm just playing. It's not boring to me. Um... I feel like when I say this, like every mastery engineer in the world just rolls their eyes, but <laughs> um, I'm actually a fan of Isotope, and I'm a fan of Ozone. I don't like everything that's in there, and the tone changes from, like, version to version. Like, like I think they're on 8. My favorite version is 7, so I just hang with 7. Yeah. Um, I'll normally start with... Uh, I'll check the image with the with the imager. I'll just kind of let everything play while I'm, and I'll just like see what's all going on, and then I'll uh, check where the low end's sitting, and if it's something that's like this is definitely going to vinyl, I'll make sure that like nothing's going crazy on the sides, and that yeah, it's pretty up the middle, and I mean if that's the taste of the record, and um, and if I need anything with that, I'll do that, but it's more like I just use that as a meter, yeah, and then. Um, I'll go and I'll listen in MS and be like, what's going on with, uh, once again, the low end? I mean, if you can, like, nail the low end with something, I mean, that's sometimes half the battle Yep, is getting that to sit right. So I will check that. And, yeah, any cuts that I need to do are done with the uh, Ozone EQ. Um, if it's anything that's really crazy... Uh, because the that EQ only goes to a certain like extent. If it's way beyond what Ozone can do, I'll pull up the Fab Filter EQ, uh, the old one, not the new one. And I'll bring up why I'm interested in the new one mm-hmm. in a hot minute. Um, that might be a purchase I have to do. Um, but not tied to Ozone on the EQ, but to, for, for for right now it works. Um, then after that, I'll normally do a skosh of compression if the uh, if the low end needs like a bump. Mm-hmm. So and it's really just to catch that. I mean, if if there's anything harsh, I'll catch it down the line. Um, I mean, unless it's like really crazy, in which case I'll like play the whole do EQ before compress thing. And so it's like you just kind of like take a pick of like an in the box compressor. Um, Normally, it's like a 2500 or an SSL, or I've kind of been playing with a couple others um, just to kind of 
kind of get a flavor. Yeah. Um, around that point, if something needs a little bit of a saturation or life, I'll play with a tape machine. Um, whether it's like I, I really like the the virtual tape machine that Slate has. Um, but man, it boosts the shit out of the low end. So I'll have to like go into the settings on every single one and then like dial back. Um, essentially how the low end is set coming out of that emulation. I'm also playing around with looking at UAD's uh, tape machine, so the yeah. Ampax. If yeah. anyone plays with that, let me know. And really the the thing that I'm looking for with that is obviously you have like a little bit of glue that you get out of that, but um, I'm, ca- I'm curious if there's like any like VSO going on on some of the higher EPS. Mm-hmm. And VSO, I'm 99% sure it's called uh, variable speed oscillation. I might be wrong. Don't quote <laughs> me on that. Um, I, I am not a professional. But it's essentially you you increasing uh, the song uh, speed by like fractions of a percent. And so some pitches go up and and it's stuff feels a little bit more lively and that's kind of what I look for. Mm-hmm. Um so if I do any like if anything does need any saturation or something I'll play with that a little bit. Um and but I don't know it it like I said like this isn't really standard for anything. Um and then what's another thing I play with? Oh yeah, we were talking before about the um, shoot, what's it called? The Dynamic EQ by uh, Isotope. I I do really like that, and uh, but I this is the point where I might switch to Fab Fab Filter because their EQ they just came out with has a multiband function on it, so that might have to be a, an area of interest. Um, and essentially, what I do with that. So say a say a vocal, like you want to bring a vocal out a little bit, and that's what Sam and I were talking about earlier, how he'll use that for uh, with the inflator. I will, I don't know, call it a male vocal that you want to boost around uh, 1,800, and I'll take a semi-wide bell, and I'll boost it maybe dB, dB and a half, and... I'll have it so that every time that vocalist goes to sing something, it's pulled down just a little bit. And and that's really where the finessing comes with the attack and release times. Um, that'd be a great name of a podcast. Um, <laughs> but that's where the finessing comes with that. And uh, essentially, you can get that vocal to move a little bit more along with boosting it. So that's cool. And then you can play at the low end with that as well. Um Playing an MS, you can do it, but it can get a little bit hairy, and mm-hmm. you can get like a little phasey if you're not really careful. So um, that's interesting. The vintage limiter that they have on the 7 is cool. On the 8, I don't like it. But the maximizer they have on the 8 is pretty nice and clean. So yeah. that's kind of cool too. Uh, something else I've been getting into with their compressor, uh, is a compressor of theirs, um, their vintage compressor uh you kind of look at it and you're like, what the hell is going on here? But you, you're able eventually to dial it in. And you can, it's very hard to tell that something's happening if you're, uh, 
if you're very careful with it and you're just like trying to shave off something or trying to warm something up, that's kind of a cool little uh, thing to play with as well. And I'm sure every time I bring up Isotope, people just roll their eyes because like when it originally came out, it's like all, every bedroom producer was playing with it, claimed to be a mastering engineer, but it does it, it does have some really cool mastering features to it. Yeah. Um, so I'll play with that every now and then. I mean, normally after I play with that, I'll focus heavily on Soothe uh, by Oak Sound, Dynamic Resonance, I think Suppressor. Uh, just, yeah, just, just download that. That's really nice. <laughs> um, I mean, the Oxford Inflator, I love. Sam got me on the Limiter as well, but uh, the Limiter, I think, has its place. And uh, it's kind of been phasing out the more that uh, the more time that the, the more time has passed, that's kind of been phasing out. Yeah. Um, I really like the Brainworks, the BXXL two, yeah, that Sam was talking about. Um, but I only really use it to catch something. That's that's normally always on before I go out of the box, and that's kind of like to catch anything that might go over. And I really like the. Uh, like it's it's separated into three sections: low, mid, and uh, and side. It's like low and then mid high. Is it? I don't know. On the then, brain works, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the side's nice, and essentially, like I just go up to like the XL, and I'll just like notch that one up just yeah. a little bit, and it'll it'll increase the apparent width, and it does so in a very tasteful way. Um, so I really like that, and. That's kind of really the only thing I use it for. Yeah. I don't really use it for much, like, creative stuff. I think you use it a lot more in depth than I do, Sam. Um, but I'll play with that, and or at least, like, chains of that. And I mean, that changes for absolutely every song. Uh, typically, if I have an album that's, like, pretty much the same, all done by the same person in the same place, typically I'll, I'll like... I'll choose a chain and I'll stick with it. Normally it sticks somewhere in those, but I mean, there's like tons of other stuff. I mean, Oak Sound makes, uh, I, they came out with something called Spiff and it, I call it a transient designer and I don't know what it is, like Soothe, I don't, I don't really know what it is, but the Spiff transient designer um, on the boosting function, not cutting function. I've never used it on cut, yeah. but on boost, I think I've made jokes on here before that I call it no snare left behind. And <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, and it just it's just absolutely lovely. So if the transient is there, it will show up and you can play with it. So I'm quite the fan of that. Um but I mean there's like tons of other things that you can do, but it's all about what you want to do. My general thing that I do is I clean up and then I enhance and then and I don't really want any conversion to get in the way of like what stuff sounds like so it's like I want the most transparent conversion I can find and but yeah I think that's I think that's all I I, I do with gear (laughs) that's all I do boring right (laughs) exactly (laughs) like someone's like sitting on the edge of their seat with like a pen and yes yes and paper Best like, yes, episode ever. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know. To me, it's like this part. This part's kind of boring. I like running the business, and I, I like right. that whole aspect of the podcast. But this will either be like I, I, I think that like the fir- like the first metrics for this episode will be through the roof. <laughs> they'll be they'll be incredible. And then, but the actual test of time will be when we do it. When we do the episode in twenty twenty, do people come back? Right. Just as just as much. Or maybe we'll lure in another batch of suckers. This will be the. Uh, we'll see. the f- The first episode that gets us our first four star rating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another gear podcast. Gosh, that's what yeah. someone's gonna say. <laughs> Give you um, one gear podcast out of thirty five episodes. Do you want to talk about technique real quick? I mean, you kind of kind of talked about it a little bit. Yeah, I feel like I did, and it's like in terms of like really the only technique is like whenever I clean stuff up, I just find resonant frequencies that I know's like this shouldn't be there. Yeah, and then I just clean it up. Man, I should create an e course and make a million dollars. There you go. You just I can it. make a six figure e course. <laughs> I can I can make a million dollars. With that one tip, it's true. You can. Yeah, I mean, I just I just clean stuff up, and like when I get something, it's like uh, upon the first listen is literally like there's a puzzle in front of you, and then <laughs> how this is gonna sound really mean? How crazy the mix is is how jumbled the pieces are. Yeah, and it's like I know how it's supposed to come out, and sometimes. Uh, and this might be mean. Sometimes the pieces just don't fit together. Yeah. And I have to deliver that news. But more times than not, I can do something and I can help. And I can take that puzzle to as close as I can get to that picture or even sometimes beyond that picture like, oh, wow, I never knew this was here. And just by doing this, I love this to happen. And sometimes it's just like a surprise. It's like I accidentally hit something. <laughs> or, or I, I I don't know. It's like I figure out a new way to work the neve or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, I, it's like I've had this thing for quite some time, and I'm still learning how the various pieces and parts of everything work. So, um, I wouldn't say there's I wouldn't say there's much of a technique. Really, the technique is in like you as a person who loves music. You need to go and you need to listen to music. And understand what current, present day music of that genre sounds like. And it's like indie music right now, at least back in the fall, freaking loved distorted snares. And I don't know why. If it if the snare hit and it clipped and it sounded like butthole, then that's what we were gonna use. And <laughs> but I mean, if people want to use distorted snares, then who am I to say otherwise? But I I will go back and I will check. So it's like, know like the genre and be like, okay, this is okay. How do we make sure that we don't like embellish how distorted this is? Like Mm -hmm. they're just trying to kind of make it sound a little crunchy. That's cool. They stuff their snare full of acorns, whatever. (laughs) Uh, That's exactly Yeah, you know the whole thing like, isn't there like a whole technique of like, uh, like playing the piano of like, like before you do that, like in some studios you quote unquote like dress the piano and you put like all this random junk on the strings and like ping pong balls and stuff like that. To make you ever it, heard that? To make it sound different. Yeah, and weird. Yeah. There's also a technique. They're incredible w- videos. Where people will, um, if it's like a, 
a grand piano or something, they will tape down the main like root chord of the song. So if it's like a C, they'll do like a middle C chord, like a C E and a G, all taped down. And then the resonance that comes from like a drum kit while it's playing uh, is bouncing off that. So they'll track it as like cool. ambiance, like ambient pad essentially of the resonant of the drum Whoa. kit, like hitting the the um, the strings and stuff within the... Yeah, that's what you call them. Strings yeah. the piano. People are smart. Yeah. They do all kinds of things with pianos. Pianos are sweet. A lot of, a lot of tones you can pull out of them. I mean, you have at least 88 options. I know. Isn't it? That's how many keys a piano has? 88? Yeah, a standard. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, yeah. that's... Any techniques you have? I mean, my main approach is, you know, that's what we said before. I listen first, and then I kind of know at this point where I want to take it. And I always, you know, take into consideration the client. But most of the time, my yeah. clients now have moved to a do-your-thing approach, which I enjoy. So I kind of just let my gut lead or my ears lead. Um, but I'm a big, like, limit then, in, then EQ type of person. Um, I like to EQ after compression and limiting or multiple stages of it, depending on what I'm doing with the song. Just because I feel like I get a bigger sound when I'm EQing the thing that's limited and whatever character has been brought out, I'm then e- boosting that character up with an EQ. Um, so that's a technique I do. Uh, outside of that, I think the biggest thing I tell people is like the way I get things sounding large, um, and I try to help people understand this, is like getting things really loud is actually pretty easy. Uh, and the way you go about it isn't with limiting to me, it's about EQ balance. Because um, hmm. once the EQ is balanced, the limiters react really smoothly. And you can get a few extra dB out of a limiter if it's reacting smoothly compared to an out-of-balanced EQ. Um, so I find that to be kind of my secret that I tell people, and it's not even my secret. It's just what everybody goes for is balance. <laughs> but I found that my main technique is EQ, really, Um and that's how I get my sound is boosting things I like and in the box, taming. I don't even do a ton of taming because I'm boosting so much of what I enjoy that things I didn't like kind of vanish, if that makes any sense. Um, instead of like cutting high end, I'll just boost low end and then the high end I didn't like is gone. <laughs> and now I have a fatter sound. So um, that's kind of my technique. That's my approach. And... I like the sound I create, which is colored and kind of large and um, seems to work well with my clients, and they like me, and that's what I do. Um, I'm not afraid to use, I'll say this, like a stock logic EQ, linear phase. I know a lot of people are like, you can't use stock anything with mastering, or you have to use Hmm. super high-end stuff, but... I will use the logic linear phase EQ on some stuff if I need to cut certain things. I find it to be, I'm going to say, clean and transparent. And there's really, I mean, people have done like some shootouts versus like logic versus Pro Tools versus Ableton EQs and or logic versus Slate or whatever. And 
all those tests are kind of like boring to me because it's like we've picked such a specific one-time example. Yeah. And like one person who did it and I'm trusting one human in some room in his ear, you know, based on... And if they post audio files, that's helpful, obviously. But even within that, it's kind of like... I don't know. The more and more I I think about testing and things like that from random people, it's like there's so many variables that you could mess up in this Mm -hmm. test. Of like if the cue is slightly off or the gain slightly off or you hit a wrong button or there's so many things kind of like I don't, I need to do the test myself for me to believe it at this point. I feel like because I've had people who have done those tests and they'll on gear slots you find them and then like a day later, like, oh, by the way. That last yeah. one actually had an L2 on it. It's like, oh my gosh. Well, no wonder everybody liked it because it was 5 dB more compressed. So, um, anyway, that's a side tangent. But yeah, those are kind of my techniques. I'm a booster. That would be probably my main technique is boost. Uh, I boost more than I cut. I kind of do that in my mixing too. I find boosting to be more fun and taste tasty than cutting. Um, so that'd be my main technique. That's about all I would say. Oh, the other technique. And I'd say, in, yeah. Here, go ahead. I'd say, like you said, the importance of knowing music is huge. So that's a technique to me. Is I mean, like know what people are listening to. Yeah, just being aware of what's popular is half the battle. Um, and knowing what music sounds like, like actually sounds like, like where does the low end sit? Where's the mid range sit? Where's top end sit? And then taking your mixes and playing with them until you figure out how to get them there. And then making like a mental checklist or even write it down. I used to write stuff down all the time when I was first starting of this does this, this does this. If I boost this, it makes this type of sound. And that is helpful um, troubleshooting your mixes when you're trying to get them somewhere. So what were you going to say, Matt? Um, and if you forgot, that's okay. We can wrap no, I, I would say like, yeah, we'll wrap here in a second. I mean, this is this podcast is already you know, stupid long. <laughs> That's how gear crap. one should be just. Oh my gosh! People are gonna hear talk. this and like get excited, and then they're gonna listen to us, and we're just gonna put them to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> if you need a good thing to fall asleep to, it's this episode. Um, yeah, I'd say like any boosting that I do is more like through an enhancement stage, yeah. and it's through like like the Neve Transformer Silk. Or it's through, like, the 6386s through the tube core. Um, I'd say it's, like, more through enhancing than it is necessarily, like, EQ boosts. So I've never really thought about it. I'm just like, yeah, I like this about this, so let's use this. It's very caveman-esque <laughs> of, like, well, if it, if it sounds good to you and they hired you and they like the other stuff you've done, the chances are they're going to like it. So I've kind of dumbed it down, but um, that's kind of how I guess I'm boosting right now. I mean, the backs, the backs will get a, a fair amount of, of boosting. So low end and then kind of like sizzling the top end. You can kind of do the whole cool thing where you can do the whole, like if you want to cut at like 28K and then, but you want to boost like a, sh- you want to do a shelf at 18, you can essentially pump air into it. And it's like, that's not necessarily like where the curve begins and ends. It's where like the very center of the curve is. So it's like 
And it's like that makes sense in a parametric sense, but like thinking of like shelves, it's like you have a little bit of a roll off that then goes a little bit beyond that. So 18 is going to be the dead top mm-hmm. of that shelf. And so however far it's going down, I'd have to look at the graph, but um and I mean you should know that whenever <laughs> you're using a piece of equipment, but I mean you can cut at 28 and then you can boost at 18. So it's kind of a a nice little like pumping air effect. Yeah. So but yeah, I mean only really boosting I do. So anyway, this episode is pretty darn long. <laughs> so, Very long. Well, let's, let's wrap. Uh, yeah, what do you say to uh getting some music and uh Cue it. I'm wrapping it, wrapping it up. Okay, a little bit of rack up. You guys got a little bit of rack up? You gonna, uh, <laughs> we got a little music? bit of wrap up. You think you're gonna play the music a little bit? Anyway, <laughs> if you like what you have heard in the other episodes besides this episode, I don't know why we think this episode so so boring. I don't know. Maybe it's, it's the epitome of the music industry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you liked this episode or if you have liked the other 30 some odd episodes we have done, uh, please go on iTunes and... Uh, I think the thing is like, comment, and subscribe. Whatever. Give us some stars. Uh, five would be preferable, and uh, a comment would be absolutely fantastic. Um, tell us what you like. If you don't like what we're doing, write into us. And uh, I mean, we'd love to have a little bit of a dialogue, and hopefully, we can get it so that uh, you like listening. And if not, well, tough noogies. Uh, yeah, I guess that's it. So. Thank you for listening to our boring gear, and thank you to our clients for listening to our exciting gear. <laughs> it's great. I don't know. Love it. I hope you found this podcast interesting. We're at an hour and a half. Let's just wrap Talking it. Talking about gear. Let's wrap Okay, we're wrapping it. <laughs> Whatever you're having, morning, evening, afternoon, evening, have a darn good one. Sam, cue the music. Cue it! See y'all in the next episode. Bye. Bye.